Hello and welcome to this BJSM podcast. We have two international leaders in sports medicine orthopedics talking to us about uh, ACL reconstruction. The purpose is going to be to help advise clinicians as to which type of reconstruction to go for. We'll touch on the issue of conservative management and I'm sure patients will be interested in hearing what they should do. I begin by uh, asking Professor Elizabeth Arendt to just introduce herself briefly, please. Well, I am a surgeon that has been in practice 22 years. When I started, I was trained as a sports medicine physician, but I do only knees now, sort of cradle to grave. As it relates to uh, the ACL, uh, I started with open techniques, that's how old I am, and the uh, scope was just in its infancy in my residency. Uh, My current practice, I do mostly bone, tendon, bone, and that's a little bit uh, out of habit. Uh, I do approximately 80% bone, tendon, bone, approximately 20% hamstring, and most of the time for primaries, uh, I would be using uh, autograft, not allograft. Thanks, Liza, and thanks for being on the call today. And uh, Lars Engelbretson, uh, if you could just tell our listeners a bit about your work, uh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I'm a Norwegian orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I actually uh, lived in Minnesota for a long time and worked with Lysa. And at that time, I had bone, potato tendon, bone. And the last few years, I uh, probably do more hamstrings, probably about 80% hamstrings. Uh, I'm from a big clinic, and uh, I'm actually more of a general uh, sports medicine person because I don't only do knees. Um, and uh, I do high-level and low-level, uh, all kinds of uh, recreational athletes as well. Great. No, that's fantastic. And uh, so, look, we're looking forward to hearing from you. So let's jump into it. In this issue of uh, BJSM, in the May issue of, of BJSM, uh, we have a couple of position statements or uh, head-to-head articles. And uh, one argues for the, uh, the patella tendon reconstruction and the other for the hamstring reconstruction and we'll for convenience um, label the patella tendon one as being by Merv Cross uh, from Sydney in Australia and uh, the hamstring one is from Leo Pincheski and both renowned surgeons who've published uh, in this field. So if we open it up to discussion of the hamstring and maybe we'll start with you Lars, um, do you want to comment either on your feeling about the hamstring um, operation in general or about that particular paper? Yeah, um, I think I'll, uh, I like the paper because it's a typical uh, the Opinchensky paper. It's uh, straightforward. Uh, 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 there are a lot of statements that uh, is lacking some, um, um, how should I put that, lacking some uh, uh, research behind it, uh, but he makes a very clear point that uh, everyone should use hamstrings and uh, not put a tendon and bone for APL reconstructions. Actually, it's kind of fun because Leo, um, he's a very good surgeon. Uh, 10, 10, 15 years ago, he said exactly the same thing at that time. Uh, he was in favor of uh, tendon bone. So I guess he is getting more uh, experienced and he has new experiences. It's, it's a very, uh, it's a good paper because it's short, short to the point and uh, fun to read. Okay, and uh, Lars, why don't you summarize you know, for the reader just the take-home message that you got from that paper. You said that uh, Leo was arguing that uh, you know, everyone should have this. Um, do you want to just 
briefly give the highlights of why he said that? I think the main reason is that uh, using hamstrings, he feels that uh, there are very few complications. Uh, the patient do not get anterior knee pain. Uh, uh, they do not get uh, osteoarthritis down the road. Uh, the um, short-term morbidity is very low. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, he feels that especially the osteoarthritis thing is a big thing for, for Leo. That's probably the main reason why he is choosing uh, hamstrings. Liza, um, you use um, bone patella bone 80% of the time. Um, so, you know, you probably have a bit of a different position to Leo on this yourself. Well, I'll be honest that the reason I mainly stayed with bone, tendon, and bone is because it works, and that was you, you tend to stay with familiar things. I did actually start doing hamstrings for probably about two years in the mid-'80s. Uh, the... Uh, the paper, one of the position statements did mention that the reason why hamstrings were not done, people started doing them and then they stopped doing them because we did not have good fixation techniques. It is true that we now have a stronger way to do it now that we do the four quad, I mean, I'm sorry, the four strand hamstring, and we have better fixation techniques. And therefore, there's been sort of a resurgence. I chose not to be part of that resurgence because I have the sentiment that bone heals faster to bone than anything that we can get to heal to one another, and it has been, it has shown to be good in my hands. And so I stayed with what worked in my hands. I use hamstrings now for just special situations, usually children, where you can't have bony ends. Sometimes I use it for cosmosis reasons, and I tend to use hamstrings when there are people that need to be in a kneeling position, uh, that is very not, not very common, but if you certainly are somebody that works on their knees or has to be in a kneeling position for a sport or something like that, I tend to stay away from bone to and bone. Great. Yeah. Um, so it's not as straightforward as clearly these two articles um, make out. Uh, and that's why we're having this, this conversation to help clinicians and patients come to those. Um, and if I, can I add absolutely something? Absolutely, um, I just want to add a little bit to the main issue that uh, Leo brings up, and that is the uh, old or, or the long-term osteoarthritis. Um, there are, I've been involved in a couple of studies with very, very long follow-ups. One that we published last year in JBJS with 20-year follow-ups of 150 ACL patients. And actually, uh, the uh, level of osteoarthritis is pretty low. It's only a little bit less than 20% whereas it's 3% in normally. Uh, we have an, another study coming up where we compared hamstrings, the same technique Leo uses, 15-year follow-up, and actually the uh, osteoarthritis is based on X-rays, Kelgren-Lawrence scale. Uh, it's exactly the same in the two, uh, in the two um, different techniques. So I think it's, it's I'm a little bit, uh, I disagree a little bit, Leo, uh, when it comes to the... Um, reference that he brings up here. I think that, uh, to be fair, the uh, amount of osteoarthritis, there is no big difference between the two techniques. So his main argument is that because you want to uh, protect the patient long-term, 
we should uh, use hamstrings. I don't think that uh, I agree with that one. Uh, that's an important point, Lars. Uh, that OA is one of the the OA, the OA issue is um, something we really want to talk about today because um, it comes up in these papers and it comes up in in your work and another paper in the May issue of BJSM actually. Liza, really, you take a different position to Dr. Pincheski, obviously, because you primarily choose bone patella bone. So why don't you tell us what goes through your mind when you're weighing up the pros and cons of the type of surgery to do for an athlete? One of the uh, things that uh, I do, one of the reasons I use bone tendon bone is out of familiarity with the technique and the fact that it has functioned well in my hands over time. I actually did do hamstrings early on in the uh, mid, early, mid-80s, about 85 to 87. And at that time, as uh, the position papers uh, adequately point out, or very appropriately point out, we didn't have very good fixation for hamstrings. And hamstrings uh, failed at a rapid, more rapid rate and had more laxity. I don't believe that's true anymore now that we use the four-strand hamstring and now that we have very good uh, fixation techniques. But I started with the, the bone tendon bone in that era and was very satisfied with it, and therefore I stayed with a product that in my hands I thought had a good result. I tend to use hamstrings for children, of course, because you can't use uh, bony ends uh, because of their open growth plates. I tend to use hamstrings sometimes for cosmesis, uh, for uh, women, uh, typically non-active uh, women that are not in the, not in the young active uh, uh, competitive age group, and I sometimes use hamstrings when a person is in a, a profession where they the, the, it mandates a lot of kneeling. So those are sort of the primary indications that I use in my practice right now for hamstrings. Thanks a lot, Liza, and uh, we'll come back to the children uh, towards the end of the podcast. Just it's a, you know. It's a, controversial and important area about the growth plates in children. So uh, really appreciate having both of you on this podcast to help our listeners uh, make these difficult decisions and help patients um, get to a good outcome. So I'm going to ask Lars um, for a comment about the, the this issue about uh, hamstring failure. So when I was growing up as a sports physician, there was the sense that hamstrings failed more often. And uh, Lars, you made the point that maybe that's not the case these days. Uh, Lars, can you share your thoughts on rates of and failure rates between the two types of operation? Yeah, I think that uh, based on uh, my experience, and uh, actually we have an ACL registry in Norway uh, where we monitor uh, all the ACLs being put in in Norway, about 2,000 a year. And so we sort of know uh, the failure rates, and it's been going on now since 2004, so we have some data in there. And... Um, in that sense, there is no difference in the failure rate between the two. Uh, there is a difference in the injury to the other knee, but the failure rates um, in Norway and Sweden and Denmark um, are, are similar. Um, I, so I'm not sure if uh, you know the modern use of hamstrings have a higher failure rate than patellofemoral uh, or than patellotendon bone. One thing I'd like to add, though, is that the early use of hamstrings, and I totally agree with Lysa there, um, they had a high failure rate, uh, partly because they only used two bundles instead of four for a while, and partly because they left the uh, tendons uh, uh, on the tibial side um, sitting uh, at their anatomic site. And then they, they would change their alignment after a while and they would become loose. So 
the old style hamstrings did not do well, and uh, that is why the technique was changed. Today, um, surgeons like myself think there is no big difference uh, in, in failure rate. No, thanks, Larry. That's a really important point and, and a really important sea change or, or paradigm shift uh, for the field that we can underscore that um, really in opinion of the two of you and uh, these papers in BJSM, that the contemporary well-executed hamstring surgery doesn't fail at any greater rate, that the failure rates are the same. And uh, it's terrific to have those data from the Scandinavian registry to base that on and to move forward as, as that registry matures. I wanted to make another point, if I could. Please do, Liza. That'd be great. The, uh, one of the things that happens, I don't know if there's good information out of this, but it's certainly people's perception, is that when you use hands, it's not a reason to use one or the other, but when you use hamstrings, people tend to feel they're much easier to rehab, and they oftentimes do not have as much pain. That may, that sounds like it's a good thing, but I, I see hamstring uh, patients very hard to hold back going back to higher level activities uh, and I still believe that regardless of what graft you use you need to honor the revascularization so that you shouldn't go back to high level activities until approaching the six month or, or at least the 24 week mark and sometimes the especially in high school it seems these kids just are being very aggressive with their knee at the two or three month mark and I think some of the failures and some of the laxity issues is because they're going back faster and I don't believe that their graft is incorporated into the bone for fixation as rapidly as bone tendon bone and of course we know the revascularization takes you know at least four months and some argue uh, that it's, it's, it's shorter but I think you still need to honor that 24-week rule for going back to aggressive activities or at least that ballpark. I just think it's a, a comment that physical therapists often bring up. They're very easy to rehab. That's a good thing. Uh, but sometimes I think it makes it's harder to have that patient uh, respect the rehab that's necessary or the time period that's necessary to revascularize the graft. What do you think about that, Lars? Well, uh, I just went to a talk at the academy here. Uh, Liza and I are, are in Las Vegas for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. And I heard Don Shelburne say that he uh, let all his ACLs, they are bone, patella, tendon, bone, every back in sports in high school, full participation at four months. And, you know, I and Lysa, both of us disagree. We don't think that's uh, good because it's too early and uh, the ligaments are not healed by that time and so forth. So Lysa has a very good point. Uh, it is a fact that uh, the hamstrings we do in some, for example, team handball players, basketball players, uh, females, that they are... They feel very comfortable at a very early stage. And if they go back to that type of twisting sport, that is not good. They uh, are far behind as far as the strength of their uh, muscles are concerned and far behind as far as the functional use of their knee is concerned. So, uh, um, so in that sense, you can say that that's an argument for using bone patellaton and bone. But it's a bad argument, I think, because uh, you, know, you don't want to to uh, change your surgical behavior uh, to, just because you want to hold a, hold a patient back. I think there are good enough arguments for, for using patella tendon in certain groups of patients uh, uh, regardless of, of this issue. 
and typically um, that would be uh, you know big football players, uh, soccer players. Uh, uh, you would use bone patella tendon bone on those because they rehab very quickly. Uh, they want to get back fast. You need to have good bone fixation. On the other hand, you can use hamstrings on ballet dancers, or you could use it on downhill skiers who are afraid of having uh, uh, anterior knee pain. So you can be selective, and some people do that. Most of the surgeons, though, like to have one favorite technique that they do over and over again, because the most uh, important part uh, of this is actually the surgical technique. Uh, it has to be good. And uh, that's why people tend to choose one technique. And if they know that very well, uh, that kind of persons will have overall uh, better results than if you switch back and forth. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is uh, that uh, as referring physicians, um, it's tricky if um, that they need to find the, the surgeon who does the particular operation that might be suitable. So what I'm hearing from both of you is that uh, it needs to be customised and there are certain situations where you might do one over the other. But uh, we also know that surgeons need to do the same type of surgery over and over again. So um, it's an interesting process. Let's ask a real practical question about the timing because we have lots of physiotherapist um, listeners and readers in BJSM. So you both alluded to the four-month issue and uh, thanks for for sharing the latest from the American Academy with us. Um, Liza, why don't you start on uh, advising, physio is going to be listening to this and saying, when should I let the person back? And you've made a couple of points, but why don't you sort of summarize that for us and then we'll ask Lars for his comments as well. So the physio is asking, you know, when can I let the person progress back to sport? Well, I, I do believe that there's a little bit of relaxation uh, in the exact time period of 24 weeks. We say six months, but 24 weeks is obviously every month having four weeks. And trust me, our patients count those weeks when we're talking about going back to sports. My, my general philosophy, though, is to limit side-to-side, uh, aggressive side-to-side work, aggressive jumping and bounding work in their rehab until approaching the four-month mark. And so then if you start that at four and you're true to trying to reestablish more functional activity and good form and good process, I think that it takes another four to five to six, sometimes eight weeks to get that person functionally good. And so I do start to allow sports-specific activity. Uh, For soccer, it might be uh, beginning to kick the soccer ball, you know, running around, uh, um, doing some side-to-side activities, maybe one-on-one drills to – one-on-two drills, but not going back to full competition until the six-month mark. And I think that, that that's a good way to progress back. The problem that I see is that if you're going to allow somebody back at the four-month mark, I'm going to take the counter-argument of, of Don Shelburne, that means you really have to start to do some sports-specific activity to get back the, the timing, the, 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 the good form, the good strength, really went two months, two and a half months. And then surely that's too early. I mean, I, I don't think that you can start to do a lot of the necessary components of trying to train back what you need to do to, to get that person ready uh, at two and a half to three months. And that's where I think the argument for six months prevails because, you know, you, you can't say, okay, all of a sudden it's four months, okay, boom, now you can go. You've got to sort of train that person along a progression. And I can't see how you can train back 
side-to-side uh, -side inbounding activities much sooner than around the four-month mark. Yeah, I tend to, I tend to uh, agree with what Lisa is saying there. Um, I have another perspective I think is, might be more interesting for physios. Can, you, can I say about that, Krim? Are you out? Yeah, and that is actually that I think that uh, uh, we operate on way too many ACLs. And we have some data now coming out of our group and a couple of other groups showing that um, it takes at least uh, six to 10 months to get their strength and their functional strength back. And uh, we would like to wait as long as that before we actually do surgery to the majority of people. I kind of take exception for high level athletes then. And by waiting that long, uh, many of these patients get good strength, good function, and they probably don't need an ACL. At least that is worth looking into. Therefore, um, you know, we used to do most of our ACL at the eight weeks mark after they have full range of motion, no swelling, then we did the surgery and then uh, we rehab them for six months. Now, um, we tend to wait longer and then we see that uh, a number of patients uh, do quite well. They don't have uh, subluxation. Sub they are back to their former activity level. And now I'm talking about the general patient and not uh, some specific uh, sports. I think that the discussion that we have today where we debate whether you should use attendance will probably uh, be replaced by the discussion on whether you should actually do these patients or whether you should do a very, very specific and high level rehab program before you actually uh, do, uh, do the surgery. And uh, this goes for um, our experiences actually from children. Um, but um, so far, the data we have shows us that uh, this can also go for uh, adults. The problem we have is that we are not able at the moment to kick out the ones that really need surgery after uh, eight weeks or so. And that is uh, the challenge that we're working on uh, to try to figure out. Yeah, that's really glad. Uh, I'm really glad. That came up because I did want to pitch this in the general context of a clinical consultation. And obviously the question about surgery or no surgery comes up before the, sur the question about the type of surgery. Um, Liza, did you want to comment back on those thoughts that Laura shared with us? Well, obviously this is a new body of knowledge that's uh, coming out of Nor Norway and Sweden. And perhaps the only people aggressively pursuing it in the United States are the Delaware group. I think it's a very interesting concept. Uh, I I think it's probably going to be, I, I really don't know, but my, my sense is from talking to Michael, Dr. Michael Axe in the Delaware group at least, that it really ends up being about 10 or 15% of the people that can survive without an ACL in the people that he has looked at so far. I don't know if, Lars, you're experiencing different, but as you might know, the, the Swedish now have a protocol that you have to go through this protocol when you get an ACL uh, unless for some reason you fall out of it because you're doing a specific high-level sport. Um, and I, I do think that we rush in too quickly to do surgery on everyone. Uh, I completely agree with Lars, and this is particularly true for people who are uh, very aggressive um, fitness 
people. They really are, they do a lot of activities to try to stay fit, but they're really not doing a lot of aggressive pivoting and jumping sports. And for this, I mean, you know, it might be the average person in the United States, you know, maybe age 30 to 50. Um, and they are just convinced that they need that ACL fix because we have, we have that ingrained into our heads for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I think it's something that we have to try to start to, you know, shift the paradigm a little bit and say that it's better to rehab your knee and see how you do. And it's certainly how I advise people in my older age group, and I'd say my older might be starting at age 30 or 35. I have not yet been uh, advising that for my teenagers and young adults. Well, uh, this is great. And uh, just reminding listeners, we're with uh, Liza Arendt and uh, Lars Engerbretson, two global authorities on on ACL surgery. And uh, I'm just going to remind listeners of the the IOC consensus statement um, just for a minute before we get back to these issues. Uh, Lars, um, can you just share with us your position at the IOC and uh, remind listeners of um, the position statement that came out in BJSM in 2008, please? Yeah, the IOC is the International Olympic Committee. Uh, They decided to uh, um, go into uh, the area of uh, medical research and science in sports medicine with the goal of um, reducing and preventing the number of injuries and diseases uh, that we see in sports, such as uh, ACLs and uh, other issues. And uh, um, last year, we did a consensus conference. We had uh, a lot of uh, major uh, people um, in research in the field of ACLs. Uh, and we looked at, uh, we looked at the uh, uh, requirements for uh, surgery, the kind of surgery one should do, but primarily we looked at uh, mechanisms of, in, uh, of uh, injury and um, uh, various ways of preventing uh, that injury. And uh, you can find that uh, paper on our website, IOC, that is iocolympic.org uh, medical, um, and also in the journal. So I think it's a good uh, contemporary paper. Yeah, thanks, Dad. And Liza, you were part of that group. Um, do you? Um, who would you suggest looks at that paper, and what did you find as the benefits of that meeting? Well, the meeting was uh, incredibly uh, helpful to be a part of because you were gathered with all these wonderful minds uh, talking about ACL. I, I think I do think, though, even though the, the 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 motivation for this podcast was these position papers, I do think that uh, two things ring true. If you're going to say to a surgeon, you know, what's the best thing you can do for your patient? Really, one of them is whatever surgery you do, do with a technique that appropriately places the tunnels in the right position. And it real the graft is secondary. And the second thing is we need to rehab our patients. And I think the surgeons relegate that to the physiotherapist. They obviously are the ones that perform that function. But I, I feel that increasingly in the United States, as we're having financial pressures, co-pays, limited numbers of rehab visits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're losing the element that is critical to the, the high performance of that, of that graft, that knee, over time. And that is to rehab them appropriately. And what really came through on this position paper is the importance of understanding the kinematics of the knee that possibly was a risk factor in creating the injury 
and to the best of our ability, trying to reduce the risk in the future by having good performance of that knee from a kinematic strength biomechanical point of view. This is the domain of the physiotherapist, and we have to encourage the physician to tell the patients and their parents and impress upon them because they still do listen to the physician. And we, I think we're losing our way a little bit by not using our authority or using our physician to encourage that part of the ACL uh, happens in the operating room and an equally important part happens over those next several months. And that, that's what that, that consensus statement told me. That's the message we have to get out to our patients. Thanks, Liza, really underscoring the importance of the physiotherapy and the collaboration and the communication between the physio and the surgeon. And uh, I'm sure you and uh, your physio work together extremely closely. Yes, we do. Yeah, and Lars, comments on uh, on that? No, I think uh, it's obvious. Uh, you know, in Scandinavia, uh, the physios uh, are very, very active and they're actually, for the most part, very good. They play a major role in uh, not only rehabbing, but also in uh, the prevention. Most of the prevention work coming out of Norway, our group, for example, so they, are, they play a very, very important role here. So I just want to bring it back to these position papers, these current. So we were just talking about the IOC position paper about ACL prevention in particular um, in BJSM in 2008, um, June and July. Um, in relation to the conference in Tromso. And uh, that's easy to find at the ISC website, as Lars mentioned, and on the BM, BJSM website. But um, here in this 2009 issue, in May 2009, we have the paper by Merv Cross and the paper by Leo Pinchewski. And if we just talk about the patella tendon paper a bit, um, the argument was made that there was better stability with the patella tendon and earlier return to sport, which is a bit paradoxical with what you were saying earlier. And uh, they also made a point that there are more complications with hamstrings than are commonly um, acknowledged. So, um, Lars, why don't you start on that one? Uh, thoughts about, about that uh, paper? I think that the paper did bring up a couple of points that I find uh, interesting. Uh, this is a, the, the, the paper of Bone, Ten, and Bone. One of the things that uh, they mentioned is that the proponents of the hamstring based their, most of their arguments on the morbidity of the patella tendon harvest rather than on the merits of the hamstrings. I just thought that was an interesting statement. And that's, you know, really true that they sort of argue against the patella tendon sometimes more than they argue for the hamstrings. That really is just sort of a, a, a point that I thought was uh, an interesting point in the paper. I, I'm not sure that I would agree with this, but proponents of bone, tendon, bone say that it's a more stable fixation. And we use that word stable insofar as you get faster and more reliable healing of the graft fixation in bone, tendon, bone. And that is largely because bone heals to bone faster than, than tendon heals in a tunnel. Now, some uh, argue that the, fixa the fixation is strength is adequate to hold that, that, that fixation while the healing is in place, uh, and that's where the whole fixation concept comes in. But I'm not sure that anybody would say that the actual uh, graph fixation is a better construct. That's sort of issue number one. The second issue that's come into play is that there's been a few papers that show that hamstrings uh, have increased relaxation over time. 
that there is increase in their KT-1000 data. It is only a small percentage of, of uh, change. It's usually only a few millimeters. That's only seen on objective testing. It is not, does not correlate uh, with any functional uh, parameters or difference in how the patient's perception of their knee is. But there is a sense that, that the hamstrings relax more over time and that it perhaps is greater in a female population. I think that that's an interesting thought process, but it just we just need more data to prove it. I think that there's maybe two studies that are fairly large size that show a slight change. I just think we need to see more of that over time done by different population groups, different surgeons, maybe different age groups, maybe even different ethnic groups uh, before we can sort of say that as an overall statement. But those are the, the ideas right now. And, and your thoughts, Lars? I think that Lysa is uh, correct. You know, there's always been an anxiety uh, regarding the issue of using hamstrings in uh, girls because uh, one has felt that uh, they are laxer, uh, even soccer players, for example. Uh, and that has been one reason why people have uh, gone to bone patella tendon bone. And it is a fact uh, that if you compare uh, female and male soccer players, younger than um, 20 years old, uh, not only uh, are we operating on many more much higher in girls, but also uh, the results as far as the laxity of the knee is concerned, is not, is, is, there is a difference between girls and boys in the favor of boys in the sense that they are tighter. Um, why that is, um, I'm not sure, but there certainly is an issue. There was one interesting thing was the issue of contralateral injuries. Uh, in the Pinchevsky paper, uh, there were data in an argument that um, patients who have the patella tendon operation may not rupture the injured side as much, but they'll have these um, contralateral ACL ruptures. Um, did either of you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, this is a well-known fact. Um, uh, as a difference between using hamstrings and, and the bone patella tendon bone. Uh, and uh, the argument has been that uh, because uh, uh, the bone patella tendon bone patients are tight, they feel very good, they subject their uh, loads and then they have an injury there. Um, uh, and uh, the numbers uh, have been shown in uh, not only one but studies. Uh, so it, it is a definite, uh, uh, I think, a def defined uh, truth that this is the case. Okay, and then the, the Scandinavian registers will show. Exactly. Uh, uh, we have, we, we can actually show that long term, and right now we have connected Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian registry. We get 8,000 ACL reconstruction in there a year, and after five years now we'll have about uh, 40,000 ACL reconstructions in there, and these are typically things that we can read from that kind of registry. Hmm. Because registry gives not only uh, the data on time zero when we operate on them, but they also give subjective data, the cost scores at two, five, and ten years uh, in these patients. So that's one good reason for having a registry, actually. Fantastic. Lars, may I ask you a question? Go ahead, Liza. Uh, in this regard, the two questions. One is, does your registry support, do you have enough difference, enough uh, population that do bone, tendon, bone, and hamstrings that you can say that bone, tendon, bone more often injures the contralateral side, number one. And number two is, do you think that because we tend to do bone, tendon, bone more often in high-level 
sports such as uh, football and our American football and perhaps, you know, uh, soccer, that maybe we are not looking at the same populations. And so we can't say it's the bone, tendon, bone, but rather it's the population in whom we are doing the bone, tendon, bone. Well, that's why it's nice to have a need registry uh, because you can easily stratify uh, the patients and you can pick out uh, populations that are, you know, not so high level and you can compare those just because you have so high number of uh, ACLs in there. So I haven't looked at the, that at all, uh, but it would be relatively easy uh, to look at. Thanks, Laurie. So although I'm, I'm conscious of our epidemiology Professor Byer uh, listening in, would he would he say that you can answer that question with a registry or would eventually really still just provide strong evidence but not as good as a randomized trial? Actually, in this specific field, with this specific question, you can answer uh, better uh, using the registry than in a randomized control study because you have to have such high number in the RCT. So this is uh, one of the good things about having the, the, the registry, I think. Uh, but we'll have to ask uh, Professor Barr what he thinks about that. Fantastic. Yep. That'll give me a chance to get him on the BJSM podcast. Uh, there are more and more young athletes having surgery, um, having ACL rupture, and clinicians are faced with uh, referring and discussing this with parents. Uh, what's your approach when you have a 12-year-old um, or younger athlete who has an ACL rupture? My current practice is that if they are active children and 90% of children are active, I do recommend an ACL reconstruction. I do not uh, recommend non-operative management solely because their growth plates are open. I do believe that we have techniques that are acceptable for that we have techniques that are acceptable for children with open growth plates to the degree. Uh, that their growth plates are not at high risk. I would not say the risk is zero, but I do not. I, I do think it is a low risk. However, the earlier statement that we talked about is whether these should be managed non-operatively first and see who we stratify. I think that that's of value, but I don't think I would do that with my with my active children at this point in time until the research comes out uh, more convincingly, at least more convincingly convincingly to me that you can go back to something like soccer or maybe soccer is a bad example, but some more something like uh, baseball, uh, tennis, um, downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, um, that and not have an ACL in a teenage age group and do as well as if you did, did not, as, as if you had reconstructed that knee. So, Right now, I do recommend reconstruction. I think the growth plates are at, at some risk, but the risk is low with our current techniques to have any deformity of angulation or um, shortening of the limb. Okay. And, uh, and you mentioned earlier that you do the hamstring reconstruction in that situation. I think that that is not a debatable point. Uh, so you have to use some form of soft tissue in that bone. And Lars? Yeah, this is a very interesting question because this is where the Americans and the uh, Scandinavians totally uh, differ. Uh, and none of us really have very, very good data to back up our statements. But I have a PhD student who's been working on this field for a while, and I have, uh, I'm lucky because I get to see all young uh, ACL patients from southern part of Norway. We have to differentiate between the ones that are 
uh, young women or children, meaning uh, when, I'm, when I talk about children, I talk about 12 years or younger. We have a cohort of patients that we actually do not operate on. We uh, rehab them, they go back to their former activity level, and then if they, uh, we have some criteria, and if they fail those, we will do surgery on them. And at the moment, uh, uh, we have about 40 patients, not very many, 40 patients in that group. It still is the biggest cohort around. And um, so far, uh, and we've followed some of these patients as long as five years now, so now we grow grown-ups, uh, we have to operate on one out of, out of five. And the challenge is then to figure out who uh, you should operate on early and who you can uh, rehab and then perhaps operate on when they are 15 or 16. Uh, and what you'd like to avoid is uh, a bucket handle tear of a meniscus or a bigger cartilage injury. And uh, at the moment, uh, we operate on about 20% of these small children. The rest are back to their uh, former activity level all through their childhood without having a uh, uh, major injury to their cartilage or to their uh, meniscus. But keep in mind now that these patients are very active. They um, see our physio uh, about one. They actually report back to him on the website uh, once a month and tell him how much work they're doing, how much activity they are doing, and so forth. Uh, it's really a fun thing, and uh, their compliance in this uh, reporting back on the quest back is uh, is uh, very very good. Um, so I think that uh, you can get away of without surgery on the majority of these. It looks like that at the moment. But again, uh, it's only 40 patients. Uh, uh, we need similar studies done by others uh, before we can say that this is actually uh, true. But um, I just want to emphasize that um, even though most Americans, US surgeons will say that you need to operate on this because they're so loose, uh, I don't agree with that. And uh, I think that at least you should look deeply into it. Very interesting. And as you say, Lars, I might just I might just comment that uh, the current thought process in the United States is that the reason to operate on them is that the risk of a meniscus and cartilage injury is greater than the risk of any kind of growth plate problem. I think so. That's that's the question that we haven't answered. And I think I do think that Lars and the Scandinavians have a very interesting thought process going and certainly need to follow through and help try to advise the rest of us as to when we should be operating and when we shouldn't. I think that's probably true of the young child and not the young child. But, um, but the main, main question is the risk of a, of a growth plate injury is not as great as the risk of a potential cartilage or meniscus damage. So. Lars? Uh, yeah, no, she has a point, um, and that is why uh, at the moment many people operate on these children. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not going to argue against that. I'm just saying that uh, uh, in our hands, 80% uh, uh, of these young children, 12 years or younger, get by with uh, tough training, uh, but uh, not needing surgery. Great. Look, uh, we could obviously continue this and these debates go on at uh, conferences for days and, and for years and we're all trying to get better data and um, trying to share that data with 
clinicians and uh, parents and, and athletes themselves. So I'm going to close this podcast there and say thanks very much to Lawrence Engerbretson and to Liza Irene for your contribution to BJSM podcasts. Um, I will um, just see if you've got any last comments uh, to to make. Uh, we'll start with you, Liza. Uh, my two, my, my, I want to just reemphasize that the two most important things is not the graft that you use, but rather that you have a technically well-placed graft, number one, and number two, that you have appropriate rehab post-op. Those are the most important two points that I hope that the reader or the listener will take home. Thanks very much. And Lars Engerbretson. Yeah, I think my uh, take-home is that uh, the two uh, papers are both uh, well-written and uh, short and easy to read, uh, and they have uh, both pretty good points. Um, as I said before, I think that the debate probably will turn away from discussing what kind of graph you're going to use um, uh, towards whether you're going to operate or not, at least uh, in short term, I think. There are some new developments uh, on the horizon as far as graphs are concerning, but if we talk about today's world, I think uh, the discussion will go away from the graphs and over to surgery or not surgery. Thank you so much. And I promise to let you both go, but I will give you a chance to uh, mention any other websites or links. Uh, Lawrence, I think you'll want to mention the IOC website um, and the Oslo Sports Trauma Research Centre. And Liza, I'll get you to do the same. Um, so Lars, uh, where can people find other useful information um, after this? I think that uh, some of the stuff I told them about uh, non-operative surgery, non-operative treatment, they can find on www.ostrc.com. That's Oslo Sports Trauma um, Research Center. Uh, and the other they will find at the uh, IOC site, and that is uh, uh, www.ioc.olympic.com dash medical. Thanks, Lars. And um, even with Google, if you put Oslo Sports Trauma, your center comes up there really at the top. So OSTRC for Oslo Sports Trauma Research Center. Liza, where can we find you on, on the web? Actually, if it has to do with ACLs, I recommend Lars's website. So, uh, And now I'm going to be recommending the uh, position statement for the IOC. So I actually, I use those and I hand those out to my patients, yes. Okay, and so that's uh, the IOC position statement is actually looks like it'll be the most downloaded paper for 2008 from uh, BJSM. So listeners can just Google BJSM and uh, get to the, the BJSM site. And then uh, if you look at the top 10 papers, you'll find it there. And uh, if you put in IOC, that'll get you to that and other papers very quickly. Well, thanks again to both of you, and um, we look forward to your contributions and thank you very much for today.